Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, leading experts Amer Zaydan, Aziz Naza, and Anne-Sophie Kubash hold an interesting discussion on the impact of artificial intelligence and machine learning in myelodysplastic syndromes. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this is a new uh, session of uh, VGHIM ONC uh, MDS sessions. Uh, my name is Amr Zaidan. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Yale University. And it's my pleasure today to have a dedicated episode uh, talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms in uh, hematologic malignancies, but in particular in MDS. And it's a pleasure to have two experts who are very experienced in this area, who's gonna share their thoughts about the current status and the future directions in how artificial intelligence will be incorporated in management of especially myeloid malignancies and MDS. Uh, so we have Dr. Uh, Ansufi Kopash, who is a hematologist at the University of uh, Leipzig. She specializes in the management of uh, patients with myeloid malignancies with a focus on artificial uh, intelligence, as well as Dr. Aziz Naza, who's a staff at the Thomas Jefferson, um, adjunct staff at the uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson University and previously uh, at Cleveland Clinic. And uh, Dr. Naza has also done extensive work on um, use of machine learning, especially in algorithms related to prognostication within MDS. So thank you both for joining me today, and I look forward to an interesting um, conversation. So maybe we can start by a um, general discussion about what really artificial intelligence um, or machine learning mean, and are they the same or are they different? Or, so maybe we can start with uh, Dr. Naza, and uh, Dr. Kobash can jump in as, uh, as needed. Thank you very much, Hammer, and, and thanks for the opportunity, this uh, wonderful opportunity to be with all of you today. Um, so, yeah, I, I think sometimes those uh, terminology get confused a little bit, so try to simplify them. So what do we mean by artificial intelligence? So artificial intelligence making machine think and do things like a human without explicitly programming the machine. So if a human can drive a car, can I make the machine drive the car without me telling the machine each single steps around this journey. Now, under this big umbrella of artificial intelligence, there is machine learning. And machine learning is teaching algorithms and computers with data. And there are two types of machine learning. One is supervised learning. And supervised learning is where we know the answer. So let's say I have a data set that has columns in it, and I'm trying to build a model to predict response or no response to chemotherapy. So in this example, I know the answer, and then I build the algorithm and then hide the answer from the algorithm and say, hey, is this a responders or non-responders? And the algorithm look at the pattern and the data and come up with the answer. So that's supervised learning. The other type of machine learning is unsupervised learning. And unsupervised learning where we don't know the answer. We ask the algorithm to put together a relationship in patterns in the data and come up with the answer to us. An example of that in, in hematology and in cancer research is clustering. So RNA cluster, clustering the RNA seek two different groups that becomes, because we don't know those groups, but we ask the algorithm to put those groups together. And there is some, what we call a semi-supervised learning, which is kind of in between. Now, the third part is deep learning. And deep learning is a subset of machine learning where the algorithm is using a neural network. 
And these neural networks are mathematical models of the neurons on our brain. So in our brain, you have neurons that are connected to each other, and those neurons fire up when we do things in a different place of the brain. If we try to mathematically model that, that becomes the neural network. And the more layers we have, that becomes deep neural network. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for such a detailed answer. Um, and Sophie, so this concept, I think, is starting to get into medicine, but many um, physicians, including hematologists, oncologists, are still not sure how this is going to apply in, um, in, in kind of day-to-day -day care. So uh, big picture, before we go into the small details of uh, how this is going to work, do you, do you anticipate that these algorithms are actually going to make a major change in how we practice medicine day-to-day and maybe in the next decade or so? Thank you for this very important question. So from my standpoint, I think there will be a huge impact for our daily practice because our data are getting bigger and bigger. So every day we will collect more data into our registry data sets. And therefore, I think not only in the field of hematology, in the broad field of medicine, it's the same case that diagnostics are getting more specific more molecular data, more cytogenetic data, more clinical data is collected. And therefore, I think the application of AI will be more and more important to use this data to find more prognostic and more stratification factors for our patients and to apply personalized medicine. And therefore, I think it will be a huge impact to apply AI within the next years. Thank you. Aziz, uh, before we go into uh, hematologic malignancies and MDS and AML um, in detail, uh, are there currently examples of where this, these technologies are actually in active use currently in, in, in within any branch of medicine, where whether it's in terms of prognostication or in terms of uh, therapeutic decisions, or is this still within the um, investigational realm? Excellent question. So um, I think overall the journey for AI in healthcare is, is a little bit an early journey yet compared to the other industries. However, we see some applications that start to surface and make it to, to the clinic. The hardest part is can we demonstrate the effectiveness of these algorithms in the clinic? So if you think about radiology, for example, I stopped recently counting, but there is probably around 350 FDA cleared algorithm. And, and this is important to differentiate. So FDA cleared, meaning that the algorithm could be deployed, but then you always need a human to be part and supervising the algorithm. So these are not FDA approved, they are FDA cleared. Um, some of these algorithms are already implemented in some hospitals and some hospitals so benefit and some hospitals did not. Um, so that's one area. We've seen, for example, last year, the approval of the first FDA cleared uh, algorithm to detect prostate cancer on pathology slides. Again, it's FDA cleared. So we see a lot of those algorithms gonna start uh, come to the clinic in the next couple of years. Uh, the question becomes, how do we implement them? How do we monitor them? How do we educate physicians how to interact with these algorithms? And do, and the, do these algorithms at the end of the day provide value? And that's to be determined in the next few years. Maybe I can add a, just one point from the perspective of Germany or sure. the EU. So we have the same problem that, of course, a lot of research 
it's just in the field of AI, but there are a few products on the way to get a medical product, but only a few just went into the clinics. We have a mammography system here in Germany, which is already licensed as a medical product, but this is a huge problem for most of the systems because it takes such a long time. And after the approval, of course, it's not easy to get into the clinic and to to find the physicians to work with it. So it's maybe something we can also discuss how we can make this easier for the physicians to use these new systems. Yeah, is, are there ongoing efforts like this in, in terms of, just to make sure I understand, are you saying that the picture can be taken and then artificial algorithm um, mechanism will read it if it's abnormal or uh, normal uh, without having like a special radiologist review it? Right, it works like this. So the system is evaluating the mammography and at the end the physician of course gets the result and it, 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 there's a possibility to, to save time because of course the radiologists only have a deeper look into the pictures with the problem or with an, with the hint for a cancer. Yeah. So, so for, this is a good example, Amir, of... of, of of how these algorithms, the clinical application. So, so there have been multiple algorithms actually to try to read the mammogram and say, you know, this is the bird degree. And then also if there is any spot on the algorithm that has suspicion. Now, in Europe, for example, let's say you take UK, for somebody to read an a mammogram, you need two radiologists to say this is malignant or this is suspicious of malignancy. So this is why it becomes, it's, it's important and I can maybe have the algorithm read one and then the radiologist read the other one. The challenge in the United States becomes, am I aiding the radiologist or am I just you know, replacing the radiologist in some instant? And today, those algorithms cannot read the image on their own. So the radiologists still have to read the image and agree with the with the algorithm, this is why it becomes an you know operational issue because if I'm not replacing the radiologist now, how I'm, how I make it easier for them to read the image, recognizing there are you know certain true positive and true negative like any you know imaging analysis. So this is where I defer uh, you know. In, in the type of, of the use case that you have and some of the challenges when you take those algorithms to the clinic. Yeah, I think this is a very important point. I'm trying to make like the analogy to, I guess, these Tesla cars where, you know, they are self-driving, but you still need to have a driver sitting behind the, the wheel. So um, is, is that more because there are instances where the algorithm might fail or is that more, I guess, from a regulatory point of view that, um, you know, the regulatory authorities want to have someone who's responsible at the end of the day because they, <laughs> they cannot go after a machine like if there is an error. So is, is this how it's currently being thought of? Uh, are there any studies about yeah. how often do you get uh, kind of inaccurate or differences in, in the read between the machine and the um, person who supervises it? So, I mean, I would love to hear what Anne uh, would say, but um, I think it's at multiple levels to this, Amir. So it's, it's multiple issues, meaning how do we evaluate the accuracy of these models? Because certainly they are not accurate. And you've seen not all the time, right? And, and how do you benchmark the accuracy? So the level of, for example, 
um, accuracy of a model is a very bad indicator of the model evaluation because, and that's happened. Let's say you have a CT scan of a bleed in the brain and 3% of the uh, images will have a bleed because as you know, it's a rare event and then the rest will not. So if you have an algorithm saying no, no, no all the time, you're 97% accurate, but your algorithm is clinically use, useless, right? It's not useful. Then it comes to, okay, now I'm going to use AUC, the area under the curve, which a lot of people use, which is also another not really right matrix to use because once you have a skewed data like this, meaning 3% events, your AUC will be high, but then, you know, the precision, what we call precision and recall will be, might be lower. So on the same uh, example, I'll give you an example, the bleed brain, there have been some algorithm where the precision is 30 or 40. What does that mean? If every 10 images that the algorithm say there is a bleed, four correct, six wrong, even though the area under the curve is much higher. That's clinically problematic because, you know, if I'm interacting, I'm, I'm six times wrong out of, you know, four times, meaning, you know, if I flip a coin, that becomes even better. So, so the first question is how do we evaluate these models, right? And do they really help? The other, from the regulatory standpoint and from patient standpoint, and then from insurance standpoint. So today, will, will the insurance pay for these algorithms? if they are paying for radiologists and paying for the algorithm? And the answer is no. So if the insurance is not going to pay for it, nobody going to adopt it. So that's another layer. And then the important layer, there has been a lot of research now putting there, patients will refuse actually. So a lot of patients have now concern that the algorithm will read their you know, uh, picture. The algorithm will discriminate against them. So there have been a lot of uh, work toward that. So there are different layers that add to the challenge of just taking those algorithms and putting them in the hospital, basically. I totally agree. And I think, as you pointed out, not only the patients, also some physicians are, of course, at, at the beginning of such an implementation, are feared about the wrong decision and about the ethics. So what happens if, if they rely on the system and they trust it and they decide for this therapy decision in our case? And at the end, it turns out that it's not the right decision or maybe another decision would be more matched to this patient case. So something in this field is, of course, not easy to discuss. And therefore, I think we should, of course, talk with the ethic department, talk with our patients, talk with our physicians. And of course, it takes time maybe to implement everything into the clinics and to get used to it, I think. Yeah, those are good points. I, I do think that actually having the physicians impress this is going to be a challenge. You know, traditionally, I think, you know, all new changes are always difficult to implement. Like, you know, when electronic medical records started coming in until now, like you are, people are having all kinds of like uh, <laughs> complaints about them and how to do them in a, in a good way. But I think once starts like coming to the point of where you are making medical decisions based on the algorithm, uh, there's probably another layer of hesitancy as i'm sure both of you know many of us like you know when you had a cat scan showing progression of you know many of us are not just relying on the report they actually like to look at the cat scan um, themselves and um, i think even when you think about prognostic scores I, I think one of the hesitancies is when people can calculate um, the risk score themselves uh, using you know a calculator 
many people feel more comfortable rather than just putting a million variables or having a machine kind of spit out, uh, you know, that this is a prognostic uh, risk of this patient because there's always this like intrinsic concern about, oh, if something wrong or, well, you know, what, what happens if, you know, not everything was um, being taken into into care. So uh, it's some of that, I guess, might take just uh, some good evidence and time to be implemented. But what do you think, uh, Aziz, is needed to kind of move these more into becoming mainstream? You mentioned the regulatory, you mentioned the insurance, but in terms of the data generated about their usefulness uh, and in terms of the patient and physician acceptance in those two particular areas, what do you think is needed? Absolutely. So it's, it's really going to go back to the use case and what the problem I'm trying to solve and then how do we work instead of physician versus machine, it's a physician plus machine. So it's the concept of me as a physician and a hematologist, I'll be better hematologist if I have better tools that equip me to take care of the patient. So, so I think that's the most important part because at the beginning of this, a lot of companies and people start you know, talking about replacing pathologists, replacing physician, and, and that's not the right context. Uh, it's the question, how do I make the physicians more efficient and more, uh, you know, in their work and provide value? So if we focus on the value, that becomes number one question. What do I mean by value? There are a lot of models that they build just to build a model, but the clinical value and impact is lacking. This is why you see a lot of these algorithms don't make it to the clinic. And then we also, one of the things was useful to us, we always operate on all models are wrong, but some are useful. So it doesn't mean that the model has to be correct 100% of the time. The question is, the outcome of the model, how is going to help me as a physician? And also, how do we benchmark it? So what do you benchmark the model? I'll give you an example. When we build our personalized survival model, the accuracy or the C index of the model was 0.75. And people say, you know, for survival, it's, it's, it's not like, it's not, we're not talking about 90, we're not talking about 80, we're talking about 0.75. And then say, well, you know, it's low. Well, what is my standard today? And if my standard today is IPSS and IPSSR, on the same data set, that standard is 0.64, the C index. That's what I'm using today. Right? So now I'm getting 10% better. Yes, I'm not getting perfect, but I'm getting 10% better. That's number one. Number two, when we put the model out there, how do you use it in the clinic? So we make sure that, you know, how to define higher risk and lower risk. And actually we demonstrated that when we use our model, the outcome of a clinical trial could have been a change. So now when you start talking about value, when you start showing people value and then educate them how to use the model, eventually they will use the model. Yeah, and we'll be talking about um, MDS in, in a little bit, but I want to give Anne the chance, like from, I guess, a German system perspective. I, I think Germany is probably the closest to the U.S. in terms of uh, insurance patterns because there's a mix of uh, single uh, or a large national uh, coverage, but also a number of private insurance systems. Um, how do you see the intake of like new technologies like this within within the health system? Is that something that are German doctors more like open to, I guess, change or is that, or the patients or um, um, how, how, how do you see this? So 
I think it's, it depends on, on the kind of doctor, of course, on the kind of hospital, on this age. So in our young working group here in Leipzig, of course, we have motivated doctors who want to apply AI, who want to apply new digital health solutions. So I think if the physician is motivated and also the, the patient, also there, it depends, of course, on this age. But we have 40 or 50 years old patients with MDS who just asked me for a digital solution to get the quality of life assessment. So I, I think it totally depends on both, on the physician and on the patient side. And if both are coming together and are interested in this new solution, I think there will be no problem. And of course, we also have the problem with insurance companies not funding most of the systems. And therefore, as I already told you, it's a long process for, for the application as a medical product. And after approval, of course, we have a chance that uh, the healthcare system will reimburse most of the solutions, but it takes time and only a few of these solutions are already licensed here. Yeah, so I think both of you agree that like I think age is a very important factor for the physicians. I guess that applies to everything technology-wise. You know, I, I think younger people are certainly more open. We can see that also with the electronic medical records and how many of the younger generation physicians actually are very comfortable doing the whole, um, you know, notes and everything from even from their uh, uh, smartphones, which, which is quite um, impressive. So maybe we can start digging more into specifically into MDS and if there is also uh, some some work that you will want to emphasize in AML as well, please free to uh, chip in and I. I think the major two areas where um, machine learning and artificial intelligence has been studied in MDS, and please correct me um, if there is more, is in the area of prognostication and the area of therapeutic decision. I don't think on the area of diagnosis, which I think actually is a major area of unmet need in MDS, because especially in lower risk MDS, when there is no excess plus when there is, you know, this dysplasia and uh, Aziz brought up the idea of like, you know, there has been always these like uh, rumors or like people saying like machines are going to replace pathologists and they are going to read the bone marrows. And I actually did see it in a couple of meetings where uh, algorithms were used to read the bone marrows uh, for lower risk MDS. But maybe we can start there and then start talking about um, prognosis and then therapeutic decisions, uh, Aziz, are any other areas that you think it's uh, going to be important? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. So if you dissected about diagnosis, prognosis, and then treatment selection slash, you know, clinical trials, if we start with diagnosis, as you mentioned, Amr is a big challenge, uh, and at least in NDS. And, you know, this have been studies and a lot of studies have shown that about 25 to 30% of patients seen at tertiary center, the diagnosis get changed, meaning patients told that they have MDS, but they don't and vice versa. The problem is identifying dysplasia on the slides become difficult. So one of the projects we have done is, is one way is you can look at the pathology slides, right? And say, okay, this is um, MDS versus other myeloid malignancy. The challenge with that, that we face when we scan that is you have to label. So you have to teach the computer. So think about it like teaching pathology resident about the blast. 
Now, you have to label all those and try to teach the algorithm, which is really hard to do. And you can pull up like three pathologists and in each one of them, in terms of blast or dysplasia, they're going to disagree. So we took it a step farther, actually, and this was a collaboration between US and Europe, where we said, can we use CBC and genomic data to say this is NTS versus other myeloid malignancies? So we built a data set from a Cleveland Clinic at the time in Munich Leukemia Laboratory, uh, sorry, in the University of Pavia in Italy, and we validated the model externally from data from Munich Leukemia Laboratory. What well, we showed that we built an algorithm that can take CBC and differential in small set of genomic data and can tell you this is MDS versus other myeloid malignancies like MDS, MPN, ICUS, CCUS, and others in a 96% accuracy without doing a bone marrow biopsy. So it's not 100%. Now, how would you do, use that in the clinic? One way you could say, okay, I can use the algorithm to screen those patients. And then with the help of pathologists, you could bring up the confidence of the pathologist. Because sometimes you get a report on a lower risk MDS. You know, it could be lower risk MDS. It could be, uh, you know, you're not getting a definitive answer. So the question, can I improve that? So I think there is uh, an opportunity still in diagnostic. And then the flip side to that is, can I use the image to predict molecular subtypes? So one of the projects we were working on, this is not published, uh, is can I look at the pathology slide and say this patient has TP53 mutation and what that will be and what the accuracy will be. So I don't have to wait for the whole genome sequencing panel. About in Germany, um, and Sophie, is, um, are there like efforts to try to kind of use these algorithms for diagnostic uh, purposes within MDS, AML, or other um, myeloid malignancies? So within our group, we are working on the, not on the diagnostic field, we are working on the therapy decision field. So since around one and a half years, we are building a AI-based therapy decision tool where we try to integrate as much as data we can collect into the three years time. And this therapy decision tool should be for patients with MDS, myeloma, and AML. And hopefully at the end of, after this three-year funding period, we hope that for every patient with every molecular feature, with every biotherapy, entered into the system by the physician. This is our approach. Hopefully it will get an result based on case-based evaluation. And at the end, hopefully, we will get a personalized treatment decision trying to find the best fitting therapy for this individual case. This is something we are working on. It's already not published because we are still working on this field and we are trying to match the data sets. But this is something we will see within the next years. Hopefully, it will work and it will also um, get therapy decision more faster and maybe more accurate. This is our aim. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, actually an exciting area. I, I think one of the um, things with MDS has been always that we did not have that many treatment options. And, you know, we, I remember when we had many papers come looking at, uh, you know, how do you select for azacitidine and decitabine sensitivity. And, you know, at the end of the day, the answer was always, well, these are the only drugs we have for high-risk MDS, so why would it matter if this... Um, so I think this might be um, something that might change now that we have more drugs that are being tested and hopefully new drugs will be approved. But I suspect some of that will actually apply very well in AML and multiple myeloma since there is a large number of new drugs. And we are actually starting to face um, 
you know, uh, clinical dilemmas in terms of how to, do you choose the initial therapy? How do you sequence it? Because there are so many different um, now drugs and um, not enough trials and to answer all the clinically important uh, questions. So I think these algorithms are certainly going to be important. Um, Aziz, um, you, you've done some prognostication work using the machine learning. So before you go into the details, I just want you to address this um, bigger picture issue of, uh, you know, you touched on it a little bit, and is that uh, people are saying that the incremental value uh, might not be that high, and why should we spend all this time and effort and implement these algorithms if the incremental value of doing all of that uh, is going to be minimal? And I, you know, similar arguments were made about the genetics that in at least in MDS, uh, the PLAS count, for example, used to be a very major proxy of prognosis, but then we realized that karyotypes are actually more important, and then molecular data started coming in, and the dilemmas have been how do you integrate all of this? So how, how do you see the incremental value uh, of uh, putting all of this together and then using machine learning to integrate? Absolutely. That's an excellent question. Um, and then I think if we start from what, what's the problem we're trying to solve and then how we could solve the problem. So what we realized is if we look at the, our current standard systems that we use to risk stratify patients, uh, we typically, as you know, in NDS, we say higher risk and lower risk. And the treatment algorithms for those patients are different, right? So we tend to be more aggressive with higher risk patients. We tend to be more like observation, less aggressive with lower risk patients. And that's a very important point because what it says, if I get the prognosis right, I get the treatment right. And if I get the prognosis wrong, I get the treatment wrong. In other words, if, if I label the patient as a higher risk, but the disease is behaving like a lower risk, then I'm over-treating that patient and vice versa. It turns out if we use our IPSS and IPSR system, and in multiple publications we have shown that about 20 to 25% of those patients say higher risk. In fact, they are lower risk and then vice versa. So about those 25 to 30%, they're getting the wrong treatment. So the question becomes, can I be more specific about my prognosis? The other conversation that actually led to build the personalized model that a lot of patients start realizing that, okay, look, you're telling me I'm a higher risk, but you're giving me general numbers. What is my, my number, my specific number? So we start seeing even patients in the higher risk group, they have a lot of heterogeneity. They behave completely different. So that's raised a question. Can we build a model that can give you personalized prediction that is specific for a given patient? And would that improve the current standard that we have? Which led to the project that we pulled together an international data set to build a machine learning model that uses CBC, demographic data and some genomic data, and then gonna give you this survival probability that's specific for a given patient. Well, we demonstrate a couple of things to go back. Okay, now we build the model. How do we evaluate the model clinically? And how do we show value of the model compare what we have? Because there's not that much value. You know, the whole purpose is not to use machine learning. To use machine learning is, can I provide value doing machine learning, not doing traditional statistics? 
So what we showed number one, as I said before, that the C index the accuracy of the model significantly improve compared to what we have today, again, the standard IPSS and IPSSR. But also what we showed that we took the data into data from prospective clinical trial. That prospective clinical trial was randomizing ASA to ASA versus lenalidomide to ASA versus vorinostat. The trial was negative. When we took that data, it was a small patient cohort, 75 patients, who have a clinical and genomic data that qualify to be applied to our model. Interestingly, as you know, this trial was designed for higher risk MDS. And what we found, 67% of those patients actually lower risk by our model, not higher risk. Now, why this was important? Because if you take the patients who has higher risk by our model and the IPSS, the combination of azalinalidomide almost doubled their survival compared to aza alone. Wasn't statistically significant because the numbers are small, right? Where the opposite happened on the lower risk. The lower risk actually get harmed. Their survival with aza was about 24 months, with the combination was about 16 months. So you can see here, we're not using the right patients to the right treatment at the right time. And this is why with that model change, how we look at clinical trials today and how do we actually risk stratify them based on the new model. So that's what's kind of the added benefit compared to just using traditional statistics and traditional modeling. So, and, and Sophie, like for, um, and as he started touching on these therapeutic decisions and how potentially they could be influenced by these algorithms, so uh, maybe you can tell us more about the, like how are you going about designing this therapeutic uh, decision tool that you are using? I think you mentioned it's uh, for uh, AML, MDS, and multiple myeloma. Right. So we named our tool KITE. So KITE will be a, a decision tool for physicians, especially hematologists in outpatient centers, but also in inpatient centers in big university hospitals like here in Germany. And we think that something like KITE will be useful in a tumor board setting where, of course, we discuss our patients and there could be an evaluation of KITE guiding the treatment physician by this AI-based case-based evaluation. On the other hand side, we can think that we can support outpatient centers, uh, like hematologists in the outpatient center, using this KITE system also to get the right treatment decision for their patients and how we built the model. So since the last one and a half year, our main focus was on data harmonization. So we, of course, talked to a lot of patient registries to be tried also to include a lot of clinical trial data, of course, also matching these data sets into our system. And at the end, it, the most important case is that we that our registry data, of course, should contain the response evaluation. So this is something a lot of registry data is, is missing. So we know the treatment line. We maybe also know the um, duration of treatment. But in a lot of registry data, there was no evaluation of treatment response. And therefore, it was not easy to collect this data. But now we are in a point where we think we are ready also to train our models. And hopefully after one and a half year, then will be the, the final phase of our project. It will be applied to the physicians and will be like in a pilot testing phase applied into the, the tumor boards and in the outpatient center. So this is our, our aim and we are working hard on it. Yeah. 
So just to make sure I understand how this works. So this is more like a living artificial uh, intelligence device. Like I think of this again as a human brain, like, you know, everything you do, you are learning of your previous experience and adjusting your next behavior. So in this algorithm, you are trying to predict the response and you are collecting the data prospectively after the patient, did they respond or did they not respond to the treatment? And then do you feed it back to the machine so that it keeps um, kind of adjusting or I guess increasing right. the um, yeah. applicability of, of the next prediction, right? Right, this is completely right. So the system is learning from this case based evaluation, so the much, so more patients are entered into the system, it will be more more accurate. And therefore we think after the rollout phase where physicians are working with the card system, it will be getting better and better. This is our, our hope, yeah. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So I think in the last uh, few minutes, I, I wanna touch on one point because I think there's a lot of active discussion about this in the field. Um, and maybe I'll use uh, you know your, your tool as is the one that you, uh, developed uh, in the uh, in the Cleveland Clinic with the uh, MDS Clinical Research Consortium um, with the machine learning for prognosis of MDS. And right now there was a, another tool which I don't think used machine learning that came uh, a large database from Europe. And then most recently we had uh, the um, uh, molecular IPSS. And I don't think this one uh, also, this was not like, this was no uh, like a regular statistical modeling, but they used, uh, I think, a large number of uh, um, basically variables, but they did not use uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence. And then you have like these two camps or, you know, which, like which one should be used. And I suspect the same thing is gonna happen with therapeutic algorithms. And so how, how do you see like, what is the best way of, having people kind of have a consistent way of approaching this rather than people using this uh, algorithm and other people using that algorithm? Absolutely. Um, so, so this is really important, right? Because we, we, the last thing we wanted to do is to have multiple algorithms and people applying multiple models. We want one unified model that everybody agrees on. Um, and and uh, also you brought up very important point. Um, how are these models easily to be used in the clinic? Because you know uh, one of the Euro European tools it has like sixty variables or, or more. Uh, the IPSS R molecular has also a lot of variables, and a lot of people don't want to just sit and click and spend like 15 minutes putting variables. Um, we were very careful when we designed our model to come up with the least amount of variables that will give me the highest accuracy or the highest impact. To keep in mind that, you know, uh, adaptability to a model is as important as your, the accuracy of the model. And again, if you have 60 variables, nobody can adapt. It's going to be really hard to adapt to these models. So I think there will be some research to try to compare the model, but part of it, not just compare the accuracy, because they might be the same level of accuracy, uh, C index or whatever evaluation. Also, how do I use them in the clinic and how easy it is for me to use them? And would the physician use them? Because we all recognize that we need to move from the IPSS and IPSSR for multiple deficiencies we talked about. The question, how do we move to the next level, basically? Yeah, following on the same theme, Anne and Sophie, so I, I think 
um, maybe we can use your uh, your uh, tool um, as as an example, like for these therapeutic decisions. And I think physicians, if you have like 50 variables that you have to enter to kind of come up with uh, which which treatment I'm gonna use, and let's assume for the sake of discussion here that we have multiple treatment choices for higher risk MDS mm -hmm. and. Uh, so uh, are, you, are you designing your tool or are there attempts to design the tool where it extracts a lot of these variables automatically from the medical record? For example, the PATH report probably has, you know, 20 different variables between the PLAS count, the degree of dysplasia in each line, some fibrosis, other things. Does it extract it automatically and mm -hmm. then gives a decision or, or do you have to actually manually enter every single uh, variable because I do agree with Aziz that even if this is the most accurate tool, it's going to be very difficult to implement from a practical point of, of view for yeah. uh, for wider use. Yeah, you're totally right. This is an important fact, and of course, I would describe it as a vision. So our vision is, of course, that we can extract it automatically from our our hospital system, from our digital system we use for for our patient documentation on our inpatient centers, and of course also the outpatient center. But maybe it's the same problem, not only in Germany, also in the U.S. That every hospital and every outpatient center is using different kind of documentation systems. So it's not not easy to to get along with this and therefore we think we can connect kite to our local system here in Leipzig this would be no problem but it will not be easy to connect it to other university hospitals because every hospital is such it's so different in in using their programs and therefore we think it's vision for the next years but i think within the first year of using it into into the daily practice, it will not be easy, and therefore we still need manual extraction of this data, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, but even when you have, like, many hospitals in the U.S. use EPIC, like, you know, it's one of the mostly used uh, systems, but even when you use, I think, the same system, there are certain data elements. For example, the PATH report. Um, I think you have to even develop algor algorithms to how to extract the data because the it comes in a PDF. It's not like, you know, uh, each, uh, like fibrosis, yes or no, or it's yeah. not done in a way that you can extract data uh, easily. And I, I think that's a big challenge because I think to make these things work, you need algorithms that actually read these reports and are able to automatically extract the relevant data without a person reading the report and then entering the data, which I think is another layer of um, kind of Absolutely. complexity that's, that's added. So I think we are coming to the end of this discussion. I just want to give you the opportunity to close with any additional thoughts uh, that you might have. Maybe I'll start with you, Anne-Sophie. Thank you. So very, thank you so much for this very interesting discussion. So I think maybe as an outlook, a future outlook, we, we saw that the future can be bright in the application of AI in medicine and especially in the field of hematology. But maybe this is also a learning point from our uh, devel development of KITE that the good registry and good patient annotation will be much more important for the application of AI in medicine. And therefore, I think maybe this is also a learning for other physicians watching our, our video, that it is very important to collect patient data on a regular basis. And then at the end, hopefully we can use these data sets for training data sets for the application of AI. Awesome. Thanks, Anne, and thank Amr for the opportunity to be with you in this lovely discussion. 
I, I always end any talk I give is, is like the uh, uh, electric light did not come from continuous improvement of candles. So if we really want to improve the outcome for our MDS patients, and we certainly need to because we have not moved the needle that much even in the last decade or so, we really need to embrace the novel technologies. And I'm not saying it's going to be the answer. I'm not saying it's going to be the cure, but really we have to take giant big steps, bold steps to change how we think about diagnosis, prognosis, and, and selection of therapy and start to embrace more digital technologies as AI, one of those technologies, and hopefully to leverage that technology to get, get us to where we need to go faster and better. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think these concepts of incremental change and evolution versus revolution and disruptive technology, I think all of these are going to be really, um, um, I think, important because, you know, I think a change in medicine is generally, has historically been somewhat, um, you know, um, I think gradual. Uh, so major disruptions take time, but I, I hope it's going to be um, happening in a, in, a, in a way that will make life much better for patients and for physicians, clearly. Thank you so much. Um, and this is takes us to the end of this uh, session of uh, VG Him Onk MDS sessions. And um, we will catch you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk podcasts on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean. Until next time.